Welcome to the Network Break, where we combine virtual donuts with commentary on the week's IT news. Today, we're discussing a multi-billion dollar Google acquisition, the latest version of a network OS, new DDoS techniques, and more. This podcast is sponsored in part by Pluribus Networks. Pluribus delivers cloud networking solutions that dramatically reduce complexity and increase business velocity for enterprises and service providers in the distributed multi-cloud era. Mark your calendar for an important video broadcast event on March 16th to see how Pluribus and NVIDIA are revolutionizing cloud networking for good this is a can't-miss event. Sign up at pluribusnetworks.com slash cloud networking. That's pluribusnetworks.com slash cloud networking for this event on March 16th. We're also sponsored in part by IP Fabric. They've put out a new report, The Future of Data Center Network Automation, which revealed that more than half of organizations that use manual data gathering processes feel it undermines their automation efforts. IP Fabric puts the right data in the hands of network engineers, and you can get the full report at ipfabric.io slash packetpushers. And the first 10 to download the report are going to be sent a little something from the team at IP Fabric as you brainstorm your network automation strategy. Go to ipfabric.io slash packetpushers for the download. Last but not least, stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes podcast with Netscope about the intersection of security and digital experience management. All right, let's get to our conversation first. We're starting with an FU, a follow-up. Uh, we've been talking about space networking and Starlink satellites. Uh, Greg, you've been referring to them, I guess, uh, as 12 inches by 12 inches. And in fact, they are... A Somewhat larger. <laughs> Apparently so. Um, this is one of the challenges when you try and do a lot of research in a particular industry and you're sort of through that, you know, that first phase of getting a grip on things and you start to lose control of the details. So that's my excuse and I'm sticking with it. But Josh, uh, Josh sends in um, to note that the actual satellites for Starlink, the most recent version 1.5, they're around 1.5 meters by 3 meters by 30 centimeters in size or five foot by 10 foot for non-metric Americans. This is quite a bit larger than earlier versions. And they, the earlier versions were 230 kilos, but more recently they're up around the 295 kilos, which as he goes on to say, early on they were doing 64 per launch. Per launch. Now they're down to about 48. I've seen 41 to 48, depends on the launch trajectory and how far they've got to go. Mm -hmm. But uh, as the satellites increase in, in load, I think you're going to start to see Starlink um, launching the... Uh, satellites that have the lasers to do the mesh so that instead of today all of the Starlink satellites you go up and then the Starlink satellite connects you straight down to the nearest ground station mm -hmm. wherever that might be mm -hmm. but they're talking about building a mesh but they haven't done that yet so the Starlink is very much a evolutionary process what you see today is not what it will be in the future right um, so thanks to Josh for highlighting that they are actually quite large so as he says they're about the size of a kitchen table. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> which is certainly bigger than one foot by one foot. <laughs> yeah, but I think his other point is is that quite often Starlink goes to fill out a launch. So a customer might, somebody, a third party might often buy a place in the launch capacity, but they might only get 20 to 50% of, the, of the, the, the capacity and the rest will be Starlink. So sometimes you actually see my CubeSats going up. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, so maybe that's where my confusion came in, but probably not. I should do better. Thanks to Josh. Now, one, just one thing before we get in again, yeah. uh, somebody wrote in and said last week's show was incredibly negative and down. Yeah, it was actually when I, when I went back and looked at it, Drew, we were a little bit negative on everything last week. Um, <laughs> what I did want to point out is that quite often we try here to take a opposing view or an all round view. So if you say, 
uh, you know, that this is the most amazing thing ever, we will challenge that and say, what do we see that might not make that true? Or are there circumstances to consider yes. that might be relevant to your situation? Sometimes that comes off sounding as negative or knocking people down. What we're trying to do is just challenge the status quo or challenge the norm and validate that assumption. You should do your own research. We're not here to tell you what to do. Uh, we're here to give you some information and some different ways of thinking from our own perspective that might be helpful to you. And if it's not so, but it also has to be said that my mind is full of negative thoughts right now, Drew. There's lots happening in the real world and uh, maybe that's coming through. So I will try to make that better and maybe not sound so down on anything or try not to be snarky about stuff. I think, you know, professionally, you and I are both uh, very cynical about a lot of the cruft that comes out of the uh, marketing machines of large vendors, which tends to maybe bleed through a little bit more than it should. So yes, uh, we do want to make sure we are asking the difficult questions, but that can also, I guess, turn into naked cynicism. So we'll, we'll try to keep an eye on that. Yeah. It's so, you know, we just get so much of the same stuff over and over and over and you don't, you know, we quite often see product announcements and launches that are all the same. Right. And it gets, it is. Or, you know, it, or it's, you know, touted as the, the best thing since sliced bread when in fact, oh, it's just a new logging product or whatever, you know, so we just, uh, yeah, yeah we'll, but we'll, we'll, we'll try to keep, yeah. uh, you know, our, our tone uh, in mind as we move forward. Yeah. Yes. So thanks for calling. I was just reading too. Broadcom's finan uh, investor presentation and their first slide talks about innovation. Uh, and that whole slide is how they acquired 10 companies like Symantec, KCA, <laughs> AT&T, LSI. That's their innovation. Is that innovation? I don't know. Maybe stop. My cynicism is starting to bubble up again. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> so yeah, just to point out that innovation is, you know, it, 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 sometimes it is what it is. Right. So anyway, apologies for that. We'll try and try and be a little bit more upbeat this week. Oh, good luck. Uh, and by the way, we uh, welcome comments, questions, corrections. You can hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU. Uh, we do like being called out when we get it wrong and we will correct it. All right, let's dive into the news. At Google, they're acquiring security firm Mandiant in an all-cash transaction for $5.4 billion. Mandiant offers a threat detection and response product as well as threat intelligence and incident response services. So Google has had a mixed record of security in this sense, uh, the Google Cloud particularly. And Google Cloud has struggled to get traction with enterprise IT. It's not necessarily seen as the best or whatever in People continue to question Google's commitment to it. And there's lots of reasons. And the Google Cloud portfolio is not quite as broad as AWS or Azure. And so Google's got to address some of that by saying, we've got something that's the best and or better than everybody else to try and uh, make it differentiate itself. Mm -hmm. So in this case, Mandian is one of the premium security businesses on the market today. They are a significant threat intelligence, but also a threat response or security response company. So they have access to the best intelligence. They have some of the best people in the industry. Uh, when you see some of the biggest security breaches going on, Mandian is often the company that those companies turn to. Right, to help them respond to, to the breach. To, yeah. That's right. So... In that context, Google's buying probably one of the best security companies in the world today for a modest premium. They're offering a huge amount of money, so potentially you might see that value go up. Right. The fact that it's um, cash means I think Google is definitely very interested in making sure they lock them down. Well, Google's got cash. doesn't have to issue shares. That's right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I know it does have um, cash, but yes, it's, I think, more tempting to the acquiree to be able to just put pocket that cash. That's exactly right. So if you're a Mandian shareholder, you get straight up cash and you're out. 
to some extent. There are a few questions here. Will enterprise IT see this as gaining Google Cloud's credibility in the IT security space? I think so. Uh, Thomas Curian, who is the CEO of the Google Cloud Business Unit, said this is an opportunity to deliver end-to-end security operations suite and extend one of the best consulting organizations in the world. Together, we can make a profound impact in securing the cloud, accelerating the adoption of cloud computing, and ultimately make the world safer. All right. Cynical me goes, make the world safer is a bit of a stretch, but um, I do believe that this will help them get credibility with enterprise IT. Mandian is well-respected. Security Twitter is a gog with the fact that one of the best security companies who've been publishing good information into the public domain that helps people generally in the industry widely. And they're a bit concerned that maybe Google won't do this because they want to profit from this. Mm. And then the second question is regulators. We've seen much more um, willingness on the part of politicians and governments to say, we don't want to see more of these tech companies be merged and to disappear. Um, there is some chance here that the US government may step in and say, no, this is a competitive problem. Don't do it. But we don't, well, we won't know for a while yet. I would guess that the regulatory hurdle is pretty low because Google does not have a significant security portfolio that makes it kind of a, you know, a competitive disadvantage for Google to acquire this cloud. So I wouldn't be too worried about that. I do think um, having a threat intelligence service, frankly, is good for a cloud provider to have in the portfolio outside of, you know, they can offer it as a service to their customers. Cloud providers should want good security awareness of emerging threats and issues that could affect its own platform or its customers. So I think on both ends of this deal, both as a, a tool they can sell and something to use internally, it seems like a good fit. does. I mean, you'd think Google would have a substantial threat intelligence business already, but having a threat response angle is probably the key here. The ability to help customers yes. to build products inside of Google Cloud that do better at this is probably the angle. Right. And uh, and but, I'm sure Mandiant does have a lot of enterprise connections that Google will want to leverage because, as you do mention, it is number three in the, in the public cloud market for the enterprise space. Exactly. So... Interesting transition here. Security, we've seen, if you pull back even further, security with everything is kind of where we're at at the moment. You know, whether it's a switch or, if, you know, it's a firewall, it's an SD-WAN, it's a whatever, just put some security into it. Right. That's the important thing right now. And this also follows that broader trend. So it doesn't go against anything in the market. It's following the market fairly closely, I think. Yeah. All right, moving on, uh, version 2.0 of the Dent Network OS has been released. Dent is an open source NAS under the umbrella of the Linux Foundation. It's designed to run on white box switches. It's targeting retail environments, warehouses, and small edge deployments. So the Dent open operating system, it's a NOS system for switches. It's been around for quite some time. We had a real flurry of open source NOSs that were out there. Dent seems to sort of just been iterating along its own pace. Some of the flurry around open source NOSes has faded away, you know, Sonic, Dent, all those types of things. Mm -hmm. Dent does have a different architecture to most others. As I understand it, the Dent architecture uses a slightly different technology approach around the Linux that it runs. That may or may not be the right way to go. I think the main thing here is that this is a, a version of Dent which is attaching to the retail market or the SME market. And when I dug into the announcement, I noticed that they're particularly talking about this version running on Marvel switching ASICs. Mm -hmm. Most of the time we see NOSs talking about running on Broadcom ASICs in the data center. This is actually talking about campus networking at the retail edge, or as they call it, edge computing. Apparently it's not a edge net, you know, you've got to call it edge net, edge computing now. Um, and those Prestira ASICs are cheap. They're campus NICs, campus ASICs, basically. So I see this as a chance for Dent to attack a slightly different part of the market. Maybe the data center market's a bit saturated and a bit very difficult for them to carve a space out. And so getting into the cheaper switches 
and in the retail space makes more sense, perhaps. My understanding is that this uh, project originated with Amazon. They've been pushing it very hard in part because they're interested in rolling out retail stores that don't have human employees. That means lots of cameras in the stores, lots of sensors in the stores, and you need a cheap, reliable network infrastructure to support those sensors and cameras. So Amazon has sort of foisted, I guess foisted maybe not be the right word, but partnered with the Linux Foundation to get this into the open source community and then brought in partners like Edgecore and others to provide the hardware and Marvell for the ASIC to have that low-cost, mm. inexpensive switch for you know a store, and you can have thousands of stores mm. running on these switches. Yeah, which is interesting. I think it, it's an interesting transition. We're seeing uh, not so much that Amazon's turning away from Broadcom, but that people are taking up the choices that are open to them. That That's the thing that I drew away from this. And the use of open source at the edge of the network, not just in the data center core. Yeah. Or, you know, by public clouds or whatever. Yeah. A couple of things to round it out. Uh, new features in 2.0 include support for IPv6 and NAT, power over Ethernet, and a rate-limiting feature to protect against broadcast storms. Uh, the name Dent, if you're wondering where that comes from, it's from uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Version 2 is codenamed Beeblebrox. Uh, if you're a Hitchhiker's fan, you'll know that's Zaphod Beeblebrox, the hippie ex-president of the Galaxy. Yeah, I'm not sure if that joke hadn't, should have worn off by now, but I do notice that the third version is Coddington. I've got no idea what that means. Coddington, I don't get that reference. Maybe they are moving away from the, the Dent nomenclature, yeah. but uh, I, I I love Hitchhiker, so I'm delighted to see it being you know still still around <laughs> in, the, in the tech ecosystem. All right, I'll go. All right, I'll roll over for that. Fair enough. <laughs> All, right. Yeah. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Pluribus Networks. They deliver cloud networking solutions that dramatically reduce complexity and increase business velocity for enterprises and service providers in the distributed multi-cloud era. Mark your calendars for an important video broadcast event on March 16th. See how Pluribus and NVIDIA are revolutionizing cloud networking for good. This is a can't-miss event. You can sign up at pluribusnetworks.com slash cloudnetworking. That's pluribusnetworks.com slash cloud networking if you want to check out that announcement with Pluribus and NVIDIA. Yeah, and we've had a pre-brief on what they're going to be talking about there, and I think this is interesting. It's going to be, uh, it is a transition for data center networking and something that I've sort of been expecting to see coming, so it might be worth uh, getting over there to pluribusnetworks.com slash cloud networking and maybe putting that on your calendar if you can spend a few minutes, get an eye onto that and see, think about what that means for your data center in the future. Yeah. All right, speaking of data centers, data center switch revenue reached record growth for the fourth quarter and the full year of 2021. That's according to a research report from the Delora Group. In particular, 400 gig ports more than doubled over the previous year and comprised more than 10% of the data center switch market. Uh, Delora is also seeing 400 gig uptake outside of the hyperscaler market, so it's starting to penetrate smaller cloud service providers and some large enterprises. Yeah, I think so. I think 400 gig, you know, when you're refreshing your network at this point, you aren't going to be deploying... 10 slash 50, you know, 10 slash 25 slash 50, mm. or even 100 gig in your spine, you're going to want to get 400 gig switches. I think we're also seeing the impact of the silicon shortage where people are taking the lower end silicon out and just focusing on a narrower set of silicon. Mm -hmm. So one, one order of a specific set of chips and that why would you keep producing 100 gigs at this point? You might as well just focus on those 400 gig switches, which you can sit in stock. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yes. I mean, you yeah. buy one big one instead of a bunch of smaller ones, I guess, if there's a supply chain shortage. Yeah. Yeah. And if I have a vendor, if I start, if I overorder these 400 gig switches, well, I've got more time to sell out that stock. I don't end up with a shelf full of 100 gig switches that I can't sell because the world moved on. Right. I'm better off to go further out and bring my customers with me. You know, then you are to try and you know get some lower cost 
you know, products out there that give you a competitive edge in the market because you look cheaper, but you're just selling lesser uh, switches with older silicon. So I suspect part of that. But the piece that you did, both of us noted, is that Deloro reported that Arista White Box and a company called Starnet Ruishi captured 90% of the revenue growth. Now that won't be a popular, popular <laughs> piece of information with certain vendors. That's got a sting for other people, yeah. It does. So I looked up Starnet Ruiji. I hope I'm saying that right because it's R-U-I-J-I-E. They are a Chinese manufacturer headquartered in Hong Kong, but straight up a, a Chinese manufacturer. So apparently Arista and Starnet captured the bulk of revenue growth in 2021. For 400 gigs. As well yeah. as white. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's really interesting in that you might think that other vendors would have been in on this action, you know, the brand names that you know and trust, but apparently not. But Arista, of course, has a very big presence in the public cloud. We've talked about it when we've discussed their financial results quite a bit. Something like 30% of Arista's revenue comes from uh, the, the big three or the mega clouds, mm -hmm. as I think they call them. And so that wouldn't be a surprise in that sense. I think it's for Arista, that's got to feel good because I've been watching the company wondering when, like Juniper and Cisco, they're going to start trying to broaden out their market into adjacent areas. They've, they've made some, you know, a few runs at the campus market, but not as, as heavily as say Juniper or Cisco has, but it seems like, you know, with this laser-like focus on the data center and cloud service providers, it is working for their strategy. Yeah, I feel that Arista is a follower. They wait for the market to establish itself. And when they know where it's going, they tend to focus on the bit that they want. So they have Wi-Fi. They're entering into the AI ops space in a modest way. Yep. You know, they acquired Big Switch, which gave them pieces of the portfolio. So they're not running at the leading edge, but they're running where most of their customers actually are, mm -hmm. would be my sense. Like, you know, they're not running around inventing the market. or Other people do that. We're just here doing what people actually do. Not very fancy or very exciting, but it might actually be very practical business. Yep, absolutely. All right, moving on. Akamai has spotted an emerging DDoS technique. It uses TCP reflection techniques to amplify attacks by co-opting middle boxes like firewalls and content filtering devices. T TCP reflection has been kind of a theoretical threat, but Akamai is now seeing it in the wild. So context around here is that if you're going to attack a middle box, that's a highly desirable target because a middle box is in a high bandwidth location. And this is talking about a one to 75 application ratio. You send a spoofed source address to the middle box and the middle box will then respond with 75 times more data back to the source, right. which is spoofed. And you actually get a substantial attack for very little cost. And quite often the middle boxes in the middle are like firewalls, for example, Yes. Uh, high performance. They're not movable. They're not even monitored a lot of the time. They just sort of sit there. So this is quite a smart attack, I think. Yeah, typically these kind of reflection attacks were would utilize UDP, but uh, researchers at the University of Maryland uh, demonstrated that you could use TCP reflection to amplify traffic, they say, by more than 6,000 percent. Uh, and this was essentially a theoretical proof, but now Akamai is, is seeing it out there happening. Uh, they say that um, they think attackers are currently testing and refining the attack and also finding the middle boxes that give them the best bang for the buck, uh, in particular, the Great Firewall of China, which does a lot of uh, content filtering, so makes a very good target and probably has a lot of that capacity they're looking for. That won't be popular with the politicians, <laughs> I imagine, or the people who are paying for that. One thing that I would note is that this relies on spoofing of the source address, and ISP should be implementing network configurations that block spoof addresses. That is at the edge of the network on internet gateways, they should only accept packets inbound from the networks that are on that edge point, right? right. And there's a whole uh, movement, a whole set of committees from the public uh, internet standards bodies called MANRS, M-A-N-R-S, 
mutually agreed norms for routing services. Uh, and they would show you, a, and that website and that committee has a bunch of training and material that you could use to configure your network to block this, to prevent spoofing from happening. And so there's two things I'd like to say about that. One is I wish blog posts like this from Akamai and Cloudflare, who also reported something like this, could sit there and say, if only service providers would you know, implement manners, we wouldn't have this. But of course, then Akamai couldn't sell DDoS services. So maybe, <laughs> maybe they wouldn't. I think there's um, still plenty of room for Akamai to sell DDoS, even if ISP has right. in, in, integrated this. But yes, I take your point. Mm. But I would also think that the people who are listening to this should also, when they set out a tender for internet provision, they could make it a requirement that the ISP implements manners as standard default. Mm. And if they don't, then you should say to them, well, I can't accept your business until I, obviously there's problems here, but if that everybody was, if everybody on packet pushers started to do that, I think we would see a lot more, uh, bandwidth providers, uh, telcos, internet services start to take it more seriously. So maybe you could start doing that. Leverage your purchasing power folks. Yes. Just put it on the tender and say, you know, we are looking for an internet service provider who uses MARNS norms for security. And, you know, point out to here in the same way that you would say, we want a, sta an, 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 a service provider that complies with all standard RFPs for BGP, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, if you're interested in finding out more about how this whole TCP reflection attack works, uh, Ethan Banks and I did interview the researchers who demonstrated the viability of this attack. Uh, that's in episode 596 of Heavy Networking. If you want to check it out, we'll have the link in the show notes. It's a pretty good conversation. A uh, quick break to tell you about our other sponsor, IP Fabric. You know you want to automate your network, one that matches your intent and lets you see problems before they happen. And it all starts with data. To automate your network effectively, you need structured data representing end-to-end -end configuration and state. IP Fabric recently sponsored an EMEA research report discussing the future of data center network automation. It revealed that more than half of organizations that use manual data gathering processes feel it undermines their automation efforts. That's where IP Fabric comes in. IP Fabric puts the right data in the hands of the people who need it. When an engineer has everything they need to execute a change right in front of them, it leads to high quality work with quick turnaround time. You can download the full report now for free at ipfabric.io slash packetpushers and start learning from the best. And speaking of free stuff, the first 10 people who download the report will be sent a little something from the team at IP Fabric to help you as you brainstorm your network automation strategy. So go to ipfabric.io slash packetpushers and get that report and a little free something. And back to the news, the registers reporting that NVIDIA is considering a software subscription model to generate recurring revenue and extend the money-making opportunities from its hardware. The article citing NVIDIA Chief Financial Officer Colette Kress, uh, she was speaking at a financial services conference. Uh, she shared examples of, say, self-driving cars that would be using NVIDIA chips and NVIDIA software for self-driving functions. That software could generate subscription revenue over the life of the car. So my initial reaction to this was that, that isn't that what NVIDIA is already doing? We, you know, when you attend the... NVIDIA GTC conference, they talk a lot about, we have this new chip and here's the software that you use to drive it. Mm -hmm. I kind of assumed that that was part of it. Is this a suggestion that they're going to take more of that software and turn it into much more of a turnkey product that customers can pay for? Is that is that what we're hearing? I think a couple of things. One, I think uh, NVIDIA is signaling to uh, you know the investor, the financial community that we're not just selling hardware. We have a way to make more money beyond moving the chips, particularly in this market where chip sales are restricted by supply chain constraints. Uh, so it's a signal mm. to them to like, please don't punish our share price too much because we have a plan to address recurring revenue. Uh, but two, yes, they already do have this model and it just sounds like they're going to start turning the crank on it. Yeah, because obviously, you know, if you take the simple model of computers and you have a GPU and then they provide the drivers, that's a bunch of software, but the drivers enable the hardware. 
but it's not too much of a step to start saying, oh, we'll start building libraries or software on top of the GPUs and, and customers could pay for them. So maybe it would be like developer tools. Right. Here's our silicon. You could use it on your own. You could have something like the Broadcom model where we say, here's the silicon and here's our custom drivers. And we force you to use our custom drivers because right. then we've got, you have to license the drivers, mm -hmm. which is partly where NVIDIA is today. They also use the proprietary licensing, but you could go a step further and say, here's our application around this and you can just call it with APIs and it'll do things, right? Right. Um, so it seems natural enough. It, and I guess the, the whole model here is when your customers find it difficult to use your hardware, sell them the software that makes it less difficult to use because that reduces friction. Yeah, so, AIML is not easy. Right. right. No, for example, they already do offer a software suite. It's called Omniverse. Uh, that's aimed at developers building 3D apps on NVIDIA GPUs. Uh, they have a free version for folks to get into it, but they also have a licensed version for teams for exactly that purpose. You know, Use our software to get the most bang out of the buck for these uh, GPUs that you've bought. And then again, that becomes more recurring revenue for mm -hmm. NVIDIA. And I also noticed when I was reading Broadcom's financial results this week, they talked a lot about their software innovation, which, as I said earlier, inquire, <laughs> included buying computer associates and Broadcom. That's semantic. That's semantic. <laughs> Not what I would call uh, it. Again. <laughs> okay. Sure, sure. So maybe that's that's the angle. Maybe it's a, a competitive response, as you say, to investors to say, yes, we've got software too. If we if we think it's the right way to go, we'll go and do that. We have yeah. a plan to squeeze our customers for even more. That's what Wall Street growth, wants to hear. Growth, growth is what we need, Drew. Right. More growth. More growth. Yep. Growth forever. Yeah. All right, our last story for today, uh, financial services, tech vendors, and consumer businesses are starting to cut off Russia from the global economy. Um, internet governing bodies, service providers, and other groups are now debating how the internet community should respond to Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. And Greg, you've been doing some thinking about this. Yeah, first of all, an apology. I often keep referring to the Ukraine instead of just Ukraine. Uh, old habits are hard. I do apologize. Right. I think uh, you and I both politics. grew up in an era where it was called the Ukraine, and so it's hard to get out of your head. Yeah. And... When we're talking about this, I want to be very careful not to dive into politics. So I'm picking my words, thinking carefully about what I'm going to say and probably dropping back into. So I apologize to everybody. It is Ukraine. Um, but we spoke last week about Ukraine's request to drop Russian.ru domains from the global DNS. And of course, they were right to ask. And the domain, the, the, the domains authority actually said no, which is also the right answer. But what we're seeing now is a different sort of a thing. The internet is actually many technologies that come together. And this week we see a number of bandwidth companies coming together to discontinue services in Russia. So in this particular case, we I'm highlighting an article from uh, Lumen, which is CenturyLink, uh, level three, they're quitting Russia, shutting down their connections. Now, this is one thing that is commercially oriented as I see it. So this isn't you know, the internet collectively deciding to cut Russia off or whatever. What we're seeing here is that commercially, these businesses do not wish to do business in Russia, partly because of commercial sanctions by governments right. who are, in theory, duly elected, and partly because um, they can't keep staff safe. And so if you can't operate a business safely and profitably, and there are sanctions in place, then maybe you're better off to shut down those businesses and to pull out, in which case you're getting the same outcome as if the internet was cut off to Russia, but that's not what's happening. It's being cut off, not because we want to shut the internet off. It's being cut off for business and political reasons. Right. Does that make sense? It does. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot of kerfuffle out there. I've, there are various organizations, you know, saying we didn't cut anybody off from the internet. The network is open. Anybody can connect to it. 
at the same time, Russia is being disconnected from the internet to some extent, including by itself. Uh, so, for example, this week, Russia announced that it's creating its own TLS certificate authority, and that will allow it, obviously, to bypass its own sanctions, but also to man in the middle most of the user traffic that comes in and out of the country, like what we've seen in China before and other countries. So today, Russia has created its own CA. Only certain browsers like the Yandex browser and one other in Russia, details in the blog post. But if that continues, they may well submit that TLS authority to Firefox and Chrome. And then we'll have another one of these politics meets tech discussions. Right. That TLS issue is an example of how uh, movements in one area, so government saying uh, imposing financial sanctions on Russia meant that certificate authorities couldn't be paid by you know Russian websites to renew those certificates. And so by default, those certificates would start to expire which then led to Russia to have to develop its own CA. Unsurprisingly. Right. So it wasn't necessarily a decision yeah. by the certificate authorities mm -hmm. to say we're cutting Russia off. It was because they couldn't get paid that they were like, well, de facto, then it's being cut off. Yes, that's right. And then interestingly, Russia has been, and we've reported on it here a few times now, Russia has a sovereign internet policy. Yeah, right. It's been building towards you know, restricting the number of connections outside of Russia and being able to perform, you know, national level firewalling and, and inspection. So, you know, it's not like Russia is unprepared for this. They did expect at some level for national security and took steps to move in this direction. So hopefully it won't be too disruptive for people who need to use the global network for this. That's right. Lots of links there if you want to look it up yourself. That does bring us to the end of the news portion. Stick around for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Netscope on how Netscope's integrating cloud-delivered security with digital experience management. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we focus on the intersection of security and digital experience management. As more applications are moving to the cloud, IT has to provide secure access while also ensuring a good user experience. Our sponsor, Netscope, which provides cloud-based security services, has an idea on how to make this happen. Our guest is Priyanka Pani. She is Product Management Director at Netscope. Priyanka, welcome to the podcast. So as I mentioned, more applications are moving to the cloud, more workers are remote, so this creates new networking and security challenges. How's Netscope integrating security with this notion of digital experience monitoring? So with this move of applications to the cloud, right, they no longer reside in these enterprise data centers. Organizations are adopting more and more of the cloud first aspect. The internet is truly becoming the new corporate network. Now, coupled with the fact that users are accessing from all kinds of locations from a variety of devices, managed and unmanaged, it is absolutely critical for us to assess mm -hmm. digital experience um, with a cloud centric approach. Now here at Netscope, with our native um, cloud-based solution and the extremely powerful new infrastructure that we have, we're able to secure all forms of traffic, right? Whether it's web, cloud, SaaS, or even private application traffic. Now that puts us in this perfect little spot to see all of this traffic, see that end-to-end -end transaction from the time that the user, um, you know, from the user on-ramp piece to that middle where, you know, the policy enforcement and the traffic processing occurs, onwards to where the, the traffic egresses and hits the applications and, and back. All right. So let me read that back to you. So what you're saying is that Netscope is a cloud security broker. You've got this cloud engine that's providing security services, inspection, logging. Right. But what you're also adding to that is the digital experience monitoring, which is critical right. for security operations or operations or operations and security. You need the security because the world is or different now about all mm -hmm. the security stuff, but you need to do it in a way that's operationally effective. You can't spend loads and loads of money putting security tools out and then bring on a, a load of headcount. So what I think what you're saying to me and tell me, confirm this for me is you're saying we use the cloud to do all the security functions. Then we put an agent at the edge to monitor what's happening. So what is the performance? What are the users? And that's the natural pairing of the two. Is that, is that what I'm, is that right? 
That's um, that's part of how we're approaching this. But we look at assessing digital experience as a comprehensive approach, right? Which means whether you have an agent or not, we should be able to provide you. Since we see all of this traffic, we should be able to provide you with that comprehensive view of are you using our platform effectively? Are you able to access all of the security capabilities that we provide with zero performance trade-offs, right? And mm-hmm. that coupled with the fact that we also seek to reduce that admin fatigue significantly by making sure that you're able to adopt our digital experience solution without spending a significant amount of trying, just trying to comprehend how the, the um, you know, solution ought to be set up, how yeah. a, you know, configuration needs to be managed. So there is a significant focus on making sure that we absolutely um, you know, focus on making sure that the fact that we sit in the center and we see all of this traffic, we're not just relegated to making sure that there's only an agent in play um, that would enable us to show you what your end-to-end experience looks like, but we should be able to provide you this comprehensive right. view. So the digital experience, so that idea of having an agent at the edge gives you insights into the user experience, but equally because you're in between the traffic flow, traffic flows get diverted into your cloud-based uh, security engine that I'm seeing everything. So this then becomes this security service edge thing where the edge and the core become unified which is what I like about the Netscope is it's this end-to-end type of approach. It's not like, oh, just send it to the cloud and then we'll take, then we can tell you stuff about it. It's actually a combination. That's right. So what this enables us to do is given our positioning right in the center, we're seeing all of this traffic flowing end-to-end, right? Which means that we have this ability to assess the digital experience based on the actual real user traffic. We don't have to rely on synthetic probes or simulated traffic to quote-unquote guess the kind of experience your end users are having, which means you get to see as a customer, the fact that you're utilizing this particular platform, this particular solution without any performance trade-offs. And the way we're actually showcasing this is by focusing on ensuring that as an end user attempts to access, say, www.somesite.com, we're Mm. looking at that transaction end to end from when the user initiates that transaction from their device it hits the Netscope pop, it gets uh, processed in the Netscope right. pop, and yeah. then the request response, um, you know, traversal happens. Yeah, and then and because you're in the middle of that transaction, you can see the response time between the cloud and the server, and you can see the response time between the user and the cloud, and then start to interpret, you know, and start to make intelligent analytic decisions about where the performance bottleneck is. Absolutely. Uh, the, right, so that's the idea. So that's really about using real user traffic to get the performance insights, the operational insights that you need. Whereas synthetic transactions, you have to, part of the challenge, like part of the challenge with synthetic transactions is I have to make them. I have to make them up somehow That's to, right. to, to do things. And that requires, there's an operational overhead associated with that that can be challenging for some people. That's absolutely uh, correct. And um, add to that the fact that when you have these synthetic probes that you're setting up or the synthetic traffic that you're setting up, at the end of the day, you're relying on a predefined uh, frequency of actually seeing these probes traverse back and forth, which by no means can ever replicate the real user traffic patterns, which is truly what you need to be able to assess to say, you know, is my user truly having an issue only when they attempt to download a particular file from a particular application or they having a problem um, in general, which is then indicative of a backbone issue or potentially an ISP outage and so on. Mm. So. Uh, with a probe, yes, you could potentially see some of these aspects, but you would never be able to replicate the true user experience um, via that route. 
it's good that we can get visibility into the user experience, uh, but I, one of the questions I have with all of these digital experience monitoring or management platforms is, okay, I can get an alarm, but how do I turn that into something I actually, you know, what, what pro, how can I use that information to actually solve a problem as opposed to just having alarms blowing up in my feed every day? And that's one of the questions that we hear from our customers all day long, right? It's great to have this visibility. You're showing me all of this information, but how's it, how does it truly turn actionable? And that's where within our um, solution, we focused on ensuring that you're not just seeing this data for the sake of seeing this data. We truly couple that with the ability to take action. Now, in some cases, that may resolve into sending the payload to um, an associated or an integrated uh, ticket management system where, let's say, you know, in case, let me give you a quick example here, right? Yep. Um, let's say we have a customer that has a site where they have a primary and a backup tunnel running in active passive mode. Now, let's say there's a tunnel flapping and the backup tunnel is now your primary tunnel and you have um, all of your user traffic going over that particular tunnel. Now, we have an analysis capability that's built in that will allow us to actually look at traffic volume uh, for, say, a five-minute time frame, right? Now, if we assess the traffic volume before and after the tunnel transition, let's say we notice a 40% traffic volume drop. Now, you would require, traditionally, you would require someone to be manually um, monitoring the traffic to be able to say, oh, there seems to be a partial failover. We haven't had a complete failover. Now, with us, what we can do is when we identify that deviation, when we identify that traffic volume drop, we can, via our integrations, actually create um, a ticket in a subsequent system, whether you know it's, a, it's the preferred ticket right. management system for the organization to enable them to actually trigger the right workflows or the playbooks that they need to respond to that. So you have the, SS, the sideways integrations with you know, the typical help desk application. So if you see something, you'll flag it and it will automatically create a ticket and be routed to a help desk operator to decide if it needs attention or if the system needs chaining. Yep, we absolutely believe that's critical to enable mm. actionability for our customers. I've got Netscope, you know, primarily targeting security buyers. Does this mean you're kind of expanding into other uh, parts of the IT stack to reach out with your product? So to be honest, the way we look at this is as a security solution, it doesn't take away the fact that there's a need for us to exhibit the platform performance at all times, which means that we have to be able to exhibit the value of the platform, not just by way of being able to secure, you know, um, your end user traffic for a particular customer, but we also have to be able to exhibit the fact that we're doing so without any performance trade-offs, which is what drives the ability to actually showcase the true platform efficacy. Now, that right. means we should be able to show the data, whether it's to a security team or whether it's to the networking and infrastructure team in order to actually um, ensure that there are no gaps in the kind of value they seek in the solution being deployed. Got it. Because we all know that if a security solution slows down um, end users, they'll find a way around it or complain or whatever. And you're saying you can demonstrate the yes, we're providing security, but also good experience. That's true. Because, I mean, we all know, right, as soon as an end user reports a problem and they start to say, OK, you know what, I can't access something or an application starts to exhibit performance. It's usually the security policies that start to take the hit first, yeah, right, which yeah. is why it's extremely important to show that there are no performance trade offs. And thus you can ensure that you're securely, you know, uh, processing the traffic. You're able to give them the kind of application uh, experience that they need in order to be productive. So in the old days when we added proxy servers and then later application inspection firewalls or application firewalls, there was always a performance hit until, you know, much later in the evolutionary cycle when hardware accelerated devices removed the performance hit. And people complained and people would do things over, you know, find ways around the firewalls because the security functions, because it was a prob problematic issue to them. So getting that speed up is important. But I, I think also what we need to understand is that speed is also a function of inspecting traffic or decoding or decrypting traffic as it goes through the cloud. And this is where 
cloud-based cloud inspection solutions for this. You can send as much traffic as you like into the cloud and you can bring as much compute as is needed. There's no maximum. So if you get a spike, you can inspect as much as possible. So it doesn't slow down in that sense. But you also have the ability to access data lakes. So you start to say, this application works this way because I can fingerprint because I've got a thousand customers worth of data to know what this application is, especially with things like Azure and AWS, right? That's absolutely true. And uh, this is where you actually can provide that capability to tell customers how they measure up against whether it's, you know, traditionally what we've seen for their particular traffic set or um, if their traffic profile should change, what they should expect to see based on the kind of um, crowdsourced telemetry that we're actually seeing, which will tell us, you know, if you change your traffic profile to um, adhere more towards encrypted traffic, here's the kind of uh, performance you should expect to see. So, being able to leverage the data lake, that that hmm. really large data set gives us the ability to surface that capability as well. So that's where you have the web gateway, the secure web gateway. You have a cloud firewall as, you know, that whole cloud access security broker and some probably some zero trust capabilities as well. Even though today we're talking about digital experience monitoring and that ability to see what the users are doing and integrate, you do have the whole suite of security functions that customers would want. That's right. And um, it's extremely important for us to actually ensure that whenever a customer, no matter what kind of vendor they're assessing, right, for their SSE and eventually for the longer term SASE architecture, it is critical to make sure that you have a good capability, good critical capability for additional experience solution in place to ensure that you can you can have that true assessment of a cloud-based solution. Just like, you know, you wouldn't take physical appliances and put them in a data center and say, hey, you know, this is the new cloud service for security. You can't do the same thing with digital experience as well. So when you start talking about SASE and you talk about ZTNA and you talk about a platform that provides all of these capabilities, especially a cloud-based platform, it is very important that your digital experience solution be co-located and be built specifically to expose whether the platform or the infrastructure is able to support all of these capabilities in a, a highly available, resilient, scalable, and efficient fashion. Yeah, so you call that an important question in that I think a lot of folks are thinking about SASE or Secure Access Service Edge or mm-hmm. you know cloud-based security. You mentioned a couple of the issues. Are, the other thing, are there other things they should be thinking of when they're wanting to maybe migrate their security model to the cloud? Absolutely. For for one thing, you know, when you have an effective digital experience solution in place, it is going to expose whether the platform is effective or not. Right. And that is exactly where the SLAs come into play, because it's important to not just provide the SLAs that we're expecting to adhere to, but also provide proof of the fact that we're adhering to it. Right. Mm -hmm. So it is important to provide customers that clear visibility, that unfettered visibility into the fact that we are committing and we are delivering the kind of SLAs that we have um, you know, underscored. Right. So the digital experience monitoring platform essentially becomes a way for the customer to ensure that they are getting the SLAs that you as exactly. the, the corporation promised. Yes. Mm. Yeah. All right. You're, you're checking on yourself. That's important. They're very important in an SD-WAN environment, you know, when our women using the public, in, the public WAN, as I call the internet, right? It is a WAN. It just happens to be a public one instead of a private yeah. one. Um, and, and there is some level of uncertainty about in people's minds. In nearly every case, the internet works better than the private WANs in every case. But having visibility can assure you that your mean time to innocence is exactly where you want it to be. You could look at it and go, the digital experience monitoring tells you that your access to the Netscope cloud is perfect. And therefore, the problem must be with the user or the server at the other end. That's very true. And that is what actually motivates a customer to actually define their processes or their playbooks to make sure you're adhering or you're actually utilizing this information to 
truly go after the problem that you've identified, right? And that is why there is a need to have that granular visibility. And that's what a digital experience management solution can enable, along with the ability to take an action on the data set that we've surfaced for them. So that's where I think the true power of DEM um, is showcased. Mean time to innocence, the most important thing in modern networking, as far as I'm concerned. I'm all down with that. Well, we are out of time. Uh, Priyanka, thank you for joining us. If uh, our listeners want to find out where they should go for more information, where would you send them? Oh, I'd highly recommend checking out netscope.com backslash DEM. That would be the best place to get more information about our digital experience management solution. Awesome. All right. That's netscope.com slash DEM and that's Netscope with a K. We'll also have that link in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Thank you, Priyanka, for joining us. And thanks to Netscope for being a sponsor. Uh, if you like what you've heard, you can find hundreds and hundreds of fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>